Please be seated. 
Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Harold Shapiro, president of Princeton University. And I would like to extend a warm welcome to the class of 2001, to their families and friends, to advanced degree candidates, members of the faculty, and other guests who join us today and for the next few days to celebrate the accomplishments of these graduates, our sons and daughters, students and friends, and of course, it is a very special pleasure to welcome today's speaker, Garrison Keillor. These commencement ceremonies play an important role in the affirmation of the life of the university and have, of course, private personal meaning for each graduate. It has been my honor to preside over these ceremonies for the last 14 years, but these, this year's ceremonies have special personal significance to me Last fall, I announced to the trustees my decision to retire as president of Princeton after 14 years to return full-time to the faculty of the university. I'm delighted, however, that the next president of Princeton is with us today, my colleague and friend, Shirley Tillman, the Howard A. Pryor Professor in the Life Sciences and Director of the Center for Integrative Genomics at Princeton. Shirley, will you stand so we could all greet you? Since the first baccalaureate ceremonies at Princeton in 1760, baccalaureate has served as an opportunity for university presidents to remind members of the graduating class of their obligation to use the Princeton education they have just received and just completed to create a life dedicated to essential and meaningful ways of serving your families, your communities, both here and abroad. At Princeton's first baccalaureate ceremony, Samuel Davies, fourth president of the university, urged the graduates to, and I quote, serve your generation, live not for yourselves, but the public, end of quote. President Patton, just over a century ago, exhorted, exhorted the class of 1900 with the following thoughts, and I quote again, let me tell you that there is nothing so great in, lo in life as love, nothing so sweet as service, no pleasure like that of feeling that you are conferring pleasure on others. Live, he said, the unselfish life. Separated by some 150 years, these statements express similar thoughts which are no less powerful for their simplicity. Serve others, put your knowledge to good use. That was the message, and that is still my message. Because these ceremonies mark both endings and beginnings, they have for us a special poignancy and power. But as I think about the graduates here today and the promise that they represent for a better society, my overwhelming feeling is one of high expectations. Four years ago, I welcomed the class of 2001 to Princeton at opening exercises. And I used a certain quote then, which I am going to repeat here today. I hope some of you remembered the music that you just heard a few moments ago. We played it over and over and over again <laughs> at opening exercises, so I hope you recognize it here today. But I also did something else at opening exercises when I welcomed this class to Princeton. And today, as you look past commencement, I'll ask you once again to keep in mind the words of Shakespeare's King Henry V, 
You may recall a scene in Shakespeare's play just prior to the Battle of Agincourt when King Henry V addressed his troops, very much aware of the challenges before them and how much an entire kingdom, in his case, seemed to be at stake. As King Henry said to those assembled before him, and I say to you, here I'm quoting, of course, from Shakespeare, I see you standing like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start, the games afoot follow your spirit. May your spirit lead you to build strong families, construct meaningful careers, support resilient and responsive communities, and always remember that you cannot fully express your humanity without responding to the needs and interests of others. Once again, welcome all to the beginning of our commencement activities. Thank you. Shaitan Rajim Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Arrahmanir Rahim Maliki Yomidin Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in Ihdina sirata al-mustaqim Sirata al-ladhina an'amta alayhim Ghayri al-maghdubi alayhim Waladalin Ameen Please join me in the English translation. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, praise be to God, the creature of the world, the compassionate, the merciful, master of the day of judgment. You alone we worship and your aid we seek. Show us the straight way, the way of those whom you have favored, not of those who have incurred your wrath, nor of those who have gone astray. Please join me in the spirit of prayer. O God, you are the high and holy ones who inhabit all eternity. And you are the near and compassionate ones who would inhabit all our hearts. We gather here today affirming our particular loyalties, confessing our particular faiths. We are Muslim and Hindu, Christian and Jewish, and none of the above. We are Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Evangelical, Liberal, and you only know what else. But we are here together to share in this particular baccalaureate service. You, O oh God, are a life-loving God. 
The evidences of your life-lovingness are all around us, in the spontaneity of laughter, in the improvisation of jazz. No straight-laced God could ever think of creating a bullfrog, or for that matter, an incongruous Princeton tiger on a pre-raid. You are a diversity-loving God. Your creation is crazy quilt. Your trademark is complexity. Every day, enable us to do something that won't compute. Give your approval to all we cannot understand. You are a justice-loving God. You love pink triangles and stars of David and single-parent mothers on welfare. And we are a privileged people. Teach us the meaning of your preferential option for the disempowered and the dispossessed. Burn in our hearts a longing for the fullness of your commonwealth, your covenant of life with all creation. And you are a daredevil God, a death-defying God, so push us to our limits. Teach us that faith in you and in each other and in ourselves requires us to risk everything for the love you stand for. Life-loving God, diversity-loving God, justice-loving God, free our longing for miracle and mystery, for creation and compassion, for hope and hallelujah. Let this adventure continue from this day forward for as long as we live. Amen. Da me'ain bata ule'an ata olech avot. Know from where you came and to where you are going from the chapters of our fathers. Please read with me responsibly. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and they that dwell therein. Ascribe to the Lord, heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Worship the Lord in holy array. Happy are the people who know the festal shout. They exalt in your name all day long. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Rulers of the earth and all peoples. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise God in the mighty firmament. Praise God with clanging cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord.
A reading from Seamus Heaney's The Cure at Troy. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. The innocent in jails beat on their bars together. A hunger striker's father stands in the graveyard, dumb. The police widow in veils faints at the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up, and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call miracles self-healing, the utter self-revealing double-take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain or lightning and storm and a god speaks from the sky, that means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term.
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I possess, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. For where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Sarve Tisukina Santu, Sarve Santu Niramaya, Sarve Badrani Pashantu, Makaschid Dukkabhagavet. May all be happy, may all be free from misery, may all realize goodness, and may no one suffer from pain and sorrow. Om Bhurvasvaha, Om Tatsavitur Varenyam, Vargoho Devasya Dimahi, Dio yo na prachodayat. O Lord, you are the giver of life, remover of pains and sorrows, bestower of happiness. You are the creator of the universe. We pray to thee. You are the giver of beauty. You inspire and guide us in the right direction. We meditate on thee. Om asatoma sadgamaya, tamasoma jyotirgamaya, Mrityarma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 O Lord, lead me from untruth to truth Lead me from darkness to light Lead me from death to immortality Peace, peace, peace I'm honored and pleased to introduce the baccalaureate speaker from the class of 2001, Garrison Keeler. Some of you may know Mr. Keeler as a writer for the New Yorker magazine or the online magazine Salon or other publications. Others may know him as the creator and host of the live radio show, A Prairie Home Companion. This program with its centerpiece portrayal of life in the Minnesota town of Lake Wobegon had its beginnings at Minnesota's McAllister College some 25 years ago. 
Today, the show, which originates at Minnesota Public Radio, reaches over two and a half million U.S. listeners on more than 460 public radio stations. My colleague and the Chief Marshal, Professor John Fleming, a Chaucer specialist, has described Mr. Keeler as a great humanist in the tradition of the Renaissance philosopher Erasmus. He notes that like Erasmus, Garrison Keeler uses graceful humor to advance serious, serious moral vision. This is true, but I would also like to trace Mr. Keeler's lineage to a source that is closer to Princeton, to Princeton's illustrious alumnus, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Both are natives of Minnesota, but the similarity goes deeper. Those of you who have heard the stories of Garrison Keeler's Lake Wobegon know that this is the mythical hometown where, and I quote, all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. <laughs> Sounds like Princeton to me. Surely, Lake Wobegon must be Minnesotan for this side of paradise, the title of Fitzgerald's first blockbuster hit, which in part describes the Princeton of his day. I would now ask you to welcome the Fitzgerald of his generation, Garrison Keillor, to this side of paradise. Mr. Keillor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here on this perfect day in the company of a lot of very smart people and the folks who brought them up and uh, from whom they inherited their good looks and a good deal of their intelligence. It's a great honor to come and speak at your baccalaureate, especially as I know that Princeton does not invite many comedians to do this. <laughs> Princeton probably has enough experience with comedy among incoming freshmen to know not to give one of those people a microphone at a solemn and dignified event. Most colleges prefer a standard commencement speaker who is eminent in a sort of vague, statesmanlike way, <laughs> so that nobody is particularly mad at him, <laughs> and who will talk about the commitment to excellence. But the message of a comedian is closer to that of the Gospels that down deep, life is a mess. <laughs> but it's a beautiful mess if you don't take yourself too seriously, which you shouldn't, because we're not so different as we pretend to be. There is a lot of human nature in everybody. I learned this in church. I didn't grow up attending interfaith services like this one. <laughs> I 
in which you have readings from different religious traditions and in which you sing hymns about the fields and the forests. I grew up in a church where they painted vivid pictures of the jaws of hell opening up <laughs> and swallowing you for your sins, and where the preacher did not stand up on this high rostrum, but walked up and down the aisles looking for converts and shaking his Bible at them. These were the people who put the fun into fundamentalism. And we boys were always made to sit down front where we could get the full impact of it. It was the summer, and the goldenrod was heavy in the air, and the ragweed, and I was becoming emotional over that. And the preacher saw me weeping, and he said, Here's one who's under conviction of sin right down here. And he came for me. I remember his shirt was wet and his hair was pasted to his head. And he reached out his hand and I took it and he pulled me towards him. And I tripped and I fell into his arms. And when I came into his arms, I could smell the whiskey on his breath. <laughs> it was an amazing discovery for a boy at the age of 12 to realize that the preacher himself had his own contradictions and today was not one of his winning days, but he was still in the game. He held me close to him and he prayed to God that I would be spared the punishment for my sins. And to have a drunken man pray for your soul <laughs> is a mysterious privilege that a person never, ever forgets. All of the good people sitting in back were not aware of this, but he was a sinner too, and that's what gave him the authority to preach. And the man who speaks passionately about the pursuit of excellence is a man who is deeply aware of his own mediocrity. I'm in the field of comedy, the same as most of you. And in our field, excellence is an elusive quality. There are no long-term goals. You're only trying to have some immediate effect on the situation. I got into comedy when I was a kid. I was one of those <laughs> really quiet kids. They weren't sure if I was an introspective genius or if I was hard of hearing. And one day, I was sitting in the school cafeteria across the table from our class intellect, Leonard Larson, the guy who always corrected you if you mispronounced words, a guy who was committed to excellence, at least on the part of others. <laughs> he was a tough critic who made you pay a big price for a mistake. He came from parents who had gone to college, so he picked up a big vocabulary around the dinner table and also a very nice set of handy opinions about things. I had a large vocabulary that I got from reading books, 
So I was never quite sure about pronunciation. Epitome, for example, was a word I didn't use for years. Or suave, or hors d'oeuvres. Charisma, or inchoked. I sat across from Leonard as he ate his tapioca pudding, and I told him a stupid joke, one that involved mucus. <laughs> and yet, as dumb as it was, the timing was perfect. He was just swallowing when it hit him. And I made Leonard Larson, our class intellect, exhale tapioca through both nostrils. I had never had this effect on anyone before. <laughs> and it was a big experience to see a great intellect turn red and yark up tapioca. <laughs> Two long noodles of it. I thought he was going to blow his entire lunch. I was thinking cerebral hemorrhage. And to me at that point, Comedy started to seem like a noble thing. Destructive, yes. Humiliating, yes, but not in a bad way. <coughs> and a good line of work for somebody who is not that smart. A writer doesn't have to be smart as long as he knows to steal from the right people. Like Mark Twain. You steal from him long enough, and people will start comparing you to him. <laughs> so, I'm not the one to talk to you about the pursuit of excellence. Obviously, you've done that already. I'm here to offer an alternative. I think you should all go out and have a beautiful life that includes adventure and romance and some failure and misery and certainly some remorse and have this beautiful life without regard to how it measures up against other people's adventures and romances and their miseries and remorse. We need to talk about the pursuit of failure, I think. A person who does not know failure is a person with a poor sense of reality. A person who goes through his twenties and thirties racking up one prize after another, getting the great job and the beautiful size four wife and the starter mansion and the two gifted beautiful children with the Celtic names. is a man who's headed for a gigantic midlife crisis in which he runs away with a waitress named Misty and perms his hair and becomes a 45-year-old singer-songwriter. You don't want to do that. A midlife crisis 
is a crisis in which you feel that despite appearances, your life is meaningless and you're a big fat failure and nobody really likes you. If you could, I think you should try having your midlife crisis right now. When you're smarter and when you're stronger and not have it 20 years from now when it's going to be a big embarrassment to everybody. It's amazing how much you can learn if you're lucky enough to get into trouble when you're young. I recommend it to you. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and as President Shapiro said, that is the hometown of F. Scott Fitzgerald. And in St. Paul, when we think of Princeton, we think of Fitzgerald. My house is in his old neighborhood. And in the spring, we get a certain number of high school students who are wandering around looking for his place, who have read The Great Gatsby in English and were moved by it. The novel is 75 years old, but Fitzgerald managed to get down on paper a certain kind of pure yearning that high school readers recognize as their own. Some of these high school students ask me if I knew Fitzgerald myself. <laughs> and I tell them only slightly. We went to different schools. But every day on my walk, I pass a big frame house on Summit Avenue with a veranda around two sides of it that used to belong to a woman named Porterfield who ran it as a boarding house. And in the summer of 1919, Fitzgerald, at the age of 23, liked to sit on that veranda with his friends John Briggs and Don Stewart and smoke and talk about the novel he was writing and the girl in Montgomery, Alabama that he hoped to marry. He had gone off to Princeton with a beautiful picture in his mind of a gothic campus and himself as a campus hero, winning all of the prizes. <laughs> he spent <coughs> much of his <coughs> time at Princeton coughing He was, um, <coughs> he was slightly tubercular, as I am. <coughs> but he spent his time writing for the Triangle Club and acting in their shows, and his grades were poor, and he had to leave school. He enlisted in the army, hoping to go to Europe and get in the war and redeem himself, but the war ended before he could. His novel had been turned down twice, and the girl had broken off the engagement. He was living in a tiny third-floor apartment in his parents in St. Paul with his alcoholic father and his spooky mother, and he spent every day in a little room where he had pinned the chapters of his novel to the curtains and where he was busy writing new material and cutting out 
big swaths of other material and reshaping the whole thing. Everyone knows how this story turned out, how the novel was published and the girl married him and he became a famous writer of the 20s. But when I think of Fitzgerald, I like to think of him sitting on that veranda at the age of 23, a Princeton dropout, so broke he had to borrow pocket money from his friends, and yet still full of courage and passion, with an indomitable spirit, looking forward to the next day and the next month and the years to come, and all of the love and glory in the world that he knew would be his. The spirit of youth, which is so palpable here in this room. Dear graduates, I am not one of those baccalaureate orators who takes you down a series of rhetorical corridors called Dare to Dream or the Commitment to Quality. Meanwhile, your brains are taking a short holiday. And then you go to the parking lot and you find the Chev and you think, quality okay, but what am I going to do for revenue? Oh, brave young navigators setting your course toward tomorrow, speak kindly to your parents, and perhaps you could borrow two or three grand and have yourself a beautiful summer. Lighting candles. Lighting candles against the darkness and marching to a different drummer. In Madrid, Paris, St. Petersburg, Machu Picchu, learning what the open road has to teach you and enjoying one last innocent romantic journey before becoming internists or patent attorney. <laughs> so that when you're my age, what we call pre-senility, you would remember that summer of glorious irresponsibility and the music and the voices and the sights and smells of bar rooms and city parks and cheap hotels and your peregrinations, pedestrian and vehicular, and the beautiful people you met and one person in particular who made your heart pound that night along the Seine as you kissed as you might never ever kiss again but then you kissed again and then one thing led to another <laughs> and you had an experience you won't share with your father and mother Use common sense, yes, but press on for love and glory. Today's grievous mistake is tomorrow's humorous story. <laughs> Don't grow old as a person whose memoirs will consist of stories from the TV shows you never missed. Live your life so that as your last days come nigh, your adventures are the envy of other alumni. We can't all be Aristotle or St. Thomas or Erasmus or Socrates. Some of us, due to the law of averages, must be mediocrities. But we can all live boldly with great esprit and panache and sometimes throw whites and colored into the same wash.
or buy the expensive wine, the kind with corks, never mind the cost. <laughs> and walk into strange cities and have the good sense to get lost. Oh, you are brave, and there is no other choice but courage. What choice has the flower but to blossom and emerge? Who would celebrate and honor you? Oh, I would. I would raise a monument made of Christmas lights and old pennants and plywood. Even if I met you as a delivery person for Ray's original pizza, I'd be impressed like when a body meets a body coming through the rye or coming through the trees. You can recognize quality even if it smells of onions and cheese. I believe in impulse, in all that is green. Believe in the foolish vision that comes out true. Believe that all that is essential is unseen. And today, we all believe in you. Whether rich or poor, sick or healthy, in whatever instance, in a place of your heart, you will always be Princeton's. And that, my dears, is the whole story. It was a pleasure to attend your baccalaureate. Thank you. join me in the litany of praise. Blessed are you, sovereign of the universe, who creates life and gives us purpose and hope. Blessed are you, sovereign of the universe, who has given us minds with which to think and hearts with which to love. Blessed are you, sovereign of the universe, who knows that we are human and forgives our sins and our failings. Holy One of Being, who gives meaning to all things. We thank you, creator and sustainer, for the learning and wisdom and the lives that have been formed through this university. I invite you to join with me in a prayer for Princeton. O eternal God, the source of life and light for all peoples, we pray that you would endow this university with your grace and wisdom. Give inspiration and understanding to those who teach and to those who learn. Grant wisdom to its trustees and administrators. And to all who work here and to all who bear her name, give your guiding spirit a quiet courage and loving service.
Will you stand for the peace, please? Shalom. The peace of God be always with you. I love the sound of the peaceful mumblings of the great class of 2001. Now will you join me in the union dismissal. Lead us from death to life, from falsehood to truth. Lead us from despair to hope, from fear to trust. Lead us from hate to love, from war to peace. Let peace fill our hearts, our world, our universe. Amen. Um,